0: Aquarian, Aquarian adventures in Aquarian. better reality. 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 reality.
1: Folklore, Surrealism and the Mysteries of the Lizard, Episode 1. As a folklorist and writer and artist, I have a Natural fascination with the crossroads that is the meeting point of art, folklore, magic and the landscape. This crossroads, I believe, has the potential to create a kind of liminal space. A space betwixt and between. And this, in turn, may form a gate through which we may pass. Folklore He's rich in songs and stories of these points of transition. In a drawl collected by the Cornish folklorist William Bottrell in the mid-19th century, in the tale of Lutie, the old man of Curie wades deep into the realms between the tides and there encounters the mermaid. In the waters that lap the lizard's shores he finds his points of transformation. ...and he becomes the first of a line of pellers.
0: The Droll of the Mermaid Some years ago, some say near Lizard ...and some say in the parish of Curie... ...there lived an old man by the name of Lutie. The sea was ebbing after a high spring tide... And, as was his custom, Luti walked down to the sands near his dwelling, looking for any old wreck that had been cast up by the flood. There appeared to be no treasure forthcoming that day, so, cursing his luck, he turned homeward. It was then that he heard a curious, unearthly wailing coming from the seaward side of a rock. Overcome with curiosity, he went round to take a geek. There, to his surprise, he spied the fairest woman he had ever beheld, sitting in a rock pool, clad only in the shimmering ore-weed fresh from the sea. Her skin was as smooth and polished as a shell, and her golden hair cascaded down over her shoulders, resplendent like sunbeams on the waters. He coughed loudly to announce his presence, and began to move towards her, at which her crying began to reach an even more plaintive pitch. She looked towards him, and her tear-filled eyes shone like the stars of the night. My dear creature, fear me not, for I am an old and sober married man of nearly thirty years of age, you seem to have lost your clothes. Is there anything I can do to help you? Says Lutie. It was then that he saw the quivering fan of her fish's tail. And, like a bolt from the blue, suddenly realised that she was not of humankind, but of the people of the sea. Good Lord! he exclaimed. I have seen your kind in the twilight sporting in the waves out to sea but never up this close before Now, my lovely maid of the sea what can I do for you? Do you understand our Cornish tongue? Our people travel to many lands and we can hear for many leagues distant Thus we can speak many tongues and it is you who must fear me not Sat as I am clad like the naked truth, for this is the custom of our people," says she. So says he, I am not feared to see you without dress and petticoats. In fact, I should like to see you sat up rather than huddled down in the pollen. So up she sat on the rock, drawing about her her mane of hair, and began to recount her woeful tale earlier that day she had left her family to go hunting her travels took her to this very beach where for a moment she had sat upon this very rock to comb her hair and before she knew it the tide had turned leaving her high and dry stranded in the world of men well could you not just wait until the tide had turned luti asked oh no she replied "'Mermen are a very different breed to us mermaids. "'They are savage and wild, and if I do not return before he wakes, "'he may begin to devour my children.' "'Her eyes twinkle, and she turned to Luti. "'It would give me much pleasure to tarry with you this night "'and hear of the wonders of this dry world until the tide turned. "'But as I am sure you understand, I must return.' All I ask of you is to serve me briefly and carry me across the sands to the sea. There is no time to waste. As a token of good faith, I will grant you three wishes. Lutie faltered. She swiftly added, I also give you my comb. If ever you have need of me, all you have to do is pass it through the waves three times, calling my name as many times, and I shall come upon the next flood tide, for my name is Morwenna. Luti was a powerful man. With little effort, he scooped her up in his arms and began to walk across the sands. Now, Luti was also a thoughtful man and had heard many a tale of those who had made thoughtless wishes and had merely brought ill-luck and sorrow upon themselves. He thought hard but time was short she urged him on what will you have long life strength riches then it came in a flash Luti announced i only wish for the power to do good for my neighbors first that i may have the power to break the spells of witchcraft Secondly, that I have the power over familiar spirits that I may compel them to inform me of all I wish to know for the benefit of others. And thirdly, these gifts continue in my family forever. She smiled, and commending him for his unselfish desires, said that none of his posterity shall ever come to want. As they continued across the sands, she began to tell of the wonders of her land, of caverns that shone with the unearthly light of sea-flowers and countless jewels. Then, like the unseen twist of a turning tide, she began to draw her arms closer about him. Come, my love, come with me and see my world the greatest treasures of these caverns are the sons and daughters of the land whom fortune has caused to be snatched by the waves. Now they deck our caves, embalmed in ways only known to the people of the sea, that they look more beautiful than they ever did in life as they gently move to and fro with the motion of the waves and the tides. By this time they had reached the edge of the breakers in an attempt to divert the flow of their talk, Lutie blurted. That is all well and good, but I fear the cold and the damp of those deep caverns will get to my bones. You must be in good supply of good liquor and tobacco to lift my spirits from the holds of all those sunken ships. Yes, indeed, she replied. There are casks of brandy, kegs of hollands, pipes of wine, Puncheons of rum and much else to warm your belly. The sea was now about his knees, and Luti's resolve began to waver. That's all very well, he said, but should I not be drowned beneath the waters? Fear not, she replied, I have the skill to fashion a pair of gills for you, that you may live in the water with the ease of a cod or a conger. Your handsome face will not be injured, as they will be hidden beneath your beard, and thus you may return to the land at any time. By now, the waters were about his waist. Her body pressed close against his, and she whispered, Come with me now. He looked into her sea-green eyes, and felt his soul begin to merge into the great primordial ocean. Then, as if from nowhere, Flutie's old dog let out a great bark. And like a torrent, his life upon the land came flooding back to him, and in an instant, the spell was broken. In a flash, he drew his fishing knife from his belt. The merest sight of cold iron is enough to send any creature from the other world to their flight. So in an instant, the mermaid loosed her grip and slid into the waves but not before she had a chance to say farewell my love farewell to thee for nine long years and then my love I'll come for thee then like the fading memory of a nightmare or a dream she was gone but the story does not end there even though Luti and the mermaid had parted on apparently ungracious terms, he did indeed find himself in possession of the powers he requested. And so too did his family, for some generations to come, acquire the reputation of being Pellers, or white witches of some repute. Apart from his newfound skills, life rolled on for Luti as much as ever. Until one night, Nine years to the day since his encounter with the mermaid. Luti was out fishing with a comrade off the lizard. It was a clear moonlit night and the sea was like a mill pond. Without warning, the sea arose about the boat. Luti cried, My hour has come! And in a flash, he was over the gunnels and into the sea. His body was never recovered. And despite all precautions, it was said that ever nine years, one of his family was claimed by the flood. This story was collected by William Bottrell around the mid-19th century. When he heard the tale, it had in turn come from an old blind, wandering droll-teller, Uncle Anthony James, some 40 years previously who travelled from farm to farm with his dog and a young boy, telling his tales and singing his songs to the accompaniment of his old fiddle. This makes the tale at least 200 years old. Shortly afterwards, the story was collected by another folklorist, Robert Hunt. He claimed that in his own time, a family in the district was said to still be in possession of the mermaid's comb. He comments that some folks say it is just a part of a shark's jawbone washed by the sea. But he also adds, but sceptical people are never lovable people.
1: Now this liminal point of transformation appears in many forms. Once passed through, however, things are never the same. Either the adventurer's life is... Formed and consolidated or it is transformed in readiness for the next step of their adventure. This point of passing is not only present in the old songs and stories, it's also present in the old folk customs. In Helston every year we witness Flora Day emerging apparently from nothing like the lily of the valley flower and then disappearing as mysteriously as it came. The celebrations are a glorious mix of tradition and wild partying. But through it, relationships are set for the year. Some are made, some cemented and some broken. And the people of Helston reclaim their town for their own. It is a gateway of consolidation. Further down the lizard, in an enigmatic shrovetide festivity, this sense of liminality is anthropomorphised into the shadowy figure of Cole pera Children would go, begging door to door, ominously chanting, ''Hencock,
0: Hancock, give me a tavern, or else Cole Perra will come to your door!''
1: This liminal point of transition heralds the beginning of spring and the Easter tide cycle of mysteries. The Lizard Peninsula is the southernmost extremity of Cornwall, and indeed Britain. Beyond its great expanse is the Atlantic. In the winter, the fearsome southwesterlies come howling through. In the old days this was said to have been the howling of the old god Bucka, the Cornish god of storms and the sea. Legend tells that much of the lizard from Goonhilly to Cadris was once covered by the ancient forest of Nemia. Its name is recorded in the medieval tale of St. Ruman. The old saint stories, especially in the southwest, are great repositories of folkloric gems. When the word Nem, or variations of this such as Nim, are found in place names, is generally thought to be derived from the old Romano-Celtic word nematon, meaning sacred grove. Legend tells that the beautifully carved medieval bench ends, which include a green man in the Mullion church were made from one of the last remnants of this venerable old forest. Now, if you haven't seen them, They're a fine collection of ends which have remarkably managed to survive the ravages of both the Reformation and the well-intentioned but overly zealous restorations of the 19th century. Now that craggy western edge of the Lizard is said to have been the eastern shoreline of Cornwall's own Atlantis, the ancient sunken land of or Lothouseau. The tale was first recorded by William of Worcester in the 15th century. He spoke of a land of fields and woods and 140 parish churches which once stretched from Mounts Bay to the Scillies but has long since sunk beneath the waves. hundred years later, the Queen's geographer, John Norden drew a map of this land and he placed the base of this triangular landmass stretching from Lizard Point to Cape Cornwall and its apex in the Scillies. Legends of this sunken land persist down through history with the tale of the sounds of the bells chiming beneath the waves and the sightings of rooftops deep beneath the waters below. Belt the magic transmitted on
0: the
1: waves of Maybe this is a folk memory of a prehistoric inundation that took place after the Ice Age, separating Cornwall from what is now mainland Europe. The fossilised forest beneath Mounts Bay would certainly corroborate this. And interestingly, there is a corresponding tale of a sunken land of Kerr, or Is, across the waters in Brittany. The peat landscape around Goonhilly would also put Nermia back to this date too. But maybe there is another dimension to this old tale. With this idea in mind, I would like to have a look at several stories that have emerged in and around the Lizard in more recent times. From this meeting point of art, magic, folklore, and the landscape. In the mid 1990s, while researching in the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic Library in Boscastle, I came across a curious typewritten manuscript entitled The Lizard Mysteries. It began They say that Cornwall plays strange in ways that have never been told. Legends coil like snakes around such places, especially in the Lizard. Strange name. One of the deepest parts of Cornwall, not exactly unspoilt, but it's kept its power. There is something here we need to know, something we need in our very bones. The manuscript goes on at some length to describe a transformative vitalizing, and consciousness-altering energy inherent in the lizard landscape, which he calls the Serpent's Breath. This, he said, is presided over by an ancient serpent goddess. He then goes on to describe a lizard cult of shamanic nature mystics who venerate this goddess and wield this serpent power and draw their mysteries from the sunken land of Leoness. Pella is an interesting word. One of its earliest usages actually comes from in Helston, in connection with Tammy Blee, Helston's own witch, who in the early 19th century was running a thriving high street practice next to what is now the, the Blue Anchor. Now, it's a Cornish dialect word of uncertain origin, but has come to mean Cornish cunning person or white witch. Now, back to the manuscript. No one seemed to know where this manuscript came from, but at the bottom of it was the name Robin Ellis. I asked around and no one seemed to know of him until I eventually asked the occult researcher Mike Howard, who recalled that he once submitted an article on Sacred Trees, to a journal he was running in the uh, 1980s, uh, which, he, which he never actually printed. Now, Mike Howard had no contact details for this Robin Alice, but had a vague memory that the West Earth Mysteries researcher, Cheryl Straffan, had printed an article of his in her journal, Mind Man wrote. Now, I contacted Shell Straffen and she came up trumps. She'd actually printed three articles of Robin Ellis on the Lizard Mysteries and she had his phone number. I called him up. He was delighted to speak on the subject. When he wrote the articles in 1990, he was he was living on the Lizard, but he had long since moved back up to Manchester. He said that he had attended a talk by the surrealist poet Peter Redgrove, who was then principal of the Falmouth Art College. Peter Redgrove, during the course of this talk, had mentioned this lizard Pella cult. Now, afterwards, Robin Ellis approached Peter Redgrove and asked him about this. And Peter Redgrove gave him the phone number of one of these last remaining lizard-pellers. Now, Robin Ellis phoned up this lizard peller um, several times and had had several conversations with them. And it was from these conversations on the phone that he derived most of his information for these articles. He also said that he got a sense that the person he was speaking to was at the end of the line of these lizard pellers and he seemed to think that they were based somewhere around the Poltesco area. Anyway, time rolled on, Peter Redgrove passed away and I've long since lost the phone number. And then one day on the radio I heard a play called The Valley of Trelamia by Peter Redgrove. It was recorded for the BBC in 1986. It told a tale of a man who came to Cornwall and encountered an ancient serpent goddess. In it was the whole Lizard Peller cult story, Lock, Stock and Barrel. A number of questions arose. Were members of the Lizard Peller cult feeding information to Peter Redgrove? Was Peter Redgrove feeding information to Robin Ellis? Was Robin Ellis experiencing false memory syndrome? Or was the whole thing a big setup? In the old Sufi teaching stories, a trickster character like Al-Qadir or Mullah Nasruddin are often presented, shaking up our sense of reality and shocking us into consciousness. In the Cornish folk tradition, the old bucker, when not stirring up the storms, he appears in human form performing this same role. Now in stories like this, one feels the bucker is not far away.
0: This was a quarry studio production, made in a secret location in a quarry somewhere in West Cornwall. Words, music, sounds and production, Steve Patterson. 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 (laughs) Engineering, editing, production and additional voice, Dave Wisdom. 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 Additional voice, website design and brainwaves, Lisa Wisdom. Wisdom. If you want to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash antiquarianadventuresinmetareality. For further information, look us up on stevepattersonantiquarian.com. We look forward to joining you for further antiquarian adventures in meta-reality.